Well, good morning and welcome again to Sailorville. Merry Christmas to everyone that's here. Thanks for braving the weather and being here this morning. And if you brought a Bible with you, I invite you to find Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, as we continue in our series, which we will conclude on Christmas Eve. Once upon a time came Jesus. You know, and we've been introducing various elements of some of the fairy tales and that uh, our kids have uh, grown up with, I can't help but think that so many of them are based off of a true story, and that uh, being the one that we're investigating here over these last uh, several weeks. So I know this is a familiar passage of Scripture to most of us, perhaps not all of us, and while it might be a familiar passage, it should never be one that bores us, it should be one that absolutely fires our imagination, should it not? Luke chapter 2, let's look at it again, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room, no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of angels, heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, They made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Will you pray with me this morning? Our Father, we are grateful today that we can come to this great, majestic, mysterious fairy tale-like and yet absolutely true story of your son's entrance into this world. Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, we thank you that once upon a time came Jesus, and unto us, unto us, a child was born, and a son was given, and his name shall be called, Lord, Wonderful. Counselor, mighty God, 
Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his way is for everlasting. And we are so grateful today, Lord, for the Lord Jesus and his coming, and for this great story. And as we look at the implications of this great story, Lord, in our lives personally, I pray we will be challenged, blessed, and exalt your Son. In his name we ask, amen. All right, well, once upon a time came Jesus. God in a manger, God of my life, God of your life, Emmanuel. The Bible teaches that Jesus, the one who came as a baby in the story we just read, is nothing less than God himself. And the Bible is replete with more than inferences, absolute references to that end. And you know them. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, say it, the Word was God. And who is that Word? Well, verse 14 tells us, and the Word became flesh, and He dwelt, tabernacled, lived, pitched His tent among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. He's full of grace. He's full of truth. And then the capstone is in verse 18, because no one has ever seen God at any time. The only God, do you notice what Jesus is called? The only God who's in at the Father's side. He has made him known. That's the Greek word. We get our word exegete. He exegeted the Father because he himself is nothing less than God. You know, even the enemies of Jesus got it. When Jesus was constantly referring to himself as the Son, the Son of Man, the Son of God, when he referred to God as his Father, they wanted to kill him because in John chapter 5, verse 18, they tried to kill Jesus because he said God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Have you ever read that? They understood that when Jesus referred to himself as the Son of God, he was referring to himself as God. And then in that epic encounter where the Pharisees were going back and forth with him and he said to them, listen, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they responded, are you kidding me? You're not even 50 years old and you're telling us you've seen Abraham. And he said, are you kidding me? Before Abraham was what? I am. And when he said that, he affirmed his eternality. Because the term I am means self-existent one. He he affirmed his self-existence. God who is, always is. And even more importantly, when he said I am, before Abraham was I am, he was telling his enemies that he was the very one who spoke to Moses 1,500 years earlier in the burning bush. Because remember that? Tell them I am has sent you. And repeatedly in Exodus 3... The person speaking to, jo- uh, speaking to Moses is referred to as nothing less than Yahweh, Jehovah, God. So Jesus was claiming to be God. That's why the next verse says they picked up stones to try to kill him. Because in their minds, he was blaspheming. So when Paul describes Jesus and his condescension, you know, he emptied himself. Remember that passage in Philippians chapter 2? He, he said, he referred to Jesus and he said, he said, though he was in the form of God, he did not 
count equality with God as a thing to be, say it, grasped. If you said to me, Pat, grasp your Bible, I would say, why should I do that? I already have it. I already am. It's already in my hands. Jesus didn't have to grasp at being God. That's what Satan did. That's what Lucifer did, remember? I will be like the, you know, the, the Most High. He was grasping. He couldn't get there because he wasn't God. But Jesus didn't have to grasp at it because he already was God. That's an amazing statement, an absolutely amazing statement. In fact, that word grasp means to rob, to steal. Jesus didn't have to snatch, didn't have to steal something that was already in his possession, deity, that he was God. And even later on, you have the plurality of the Godhead, because we believe God is Father, Son, and what? Holy Spirit, right? There's a plurality in the Godhead. And so you have this mysterious, beautiful passage, a quote from the Psalms, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, God, your God has anointed you. Now, there's, we have a problem with that. Either you got two gods here, okay? You either have two gods in that passage of Scripture, or one God who so amazingly expresses himself in more than one personality, which is exactly what he has done. And, and he started doing it very early on, remember, when he created everything? I'm, I, let's, let's, make, let's us make man in our own image. Have you ever read that? That's the plurality of the Godhead. One of my favorite passages affirming the deity, the godness of Jesus is, is when Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. And he says to him, he says, now pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock, because you're pastors in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of, the church of who? Say it, everyone. God. Now watch the rest of the verse. Which he obtained with his own blood. Who is the antecedent to he? God. If God obtained the church with his blood, therefore Jesus must be God. And this story that we just read, and we've looked at a number of times over the years, this story is filled with implications. God in a manger, deity in a manger, in a common cattle trough, in a cave. What are the implications of this familiar Christmas story in your life, in my life? What are the implications of Jesus' deity, his godness in my life? If Jesus is God, then listen to this. If he is God, then he is every bit as concerned about the details of your life as his father was of the details in his son's life. You know, we used, when I... I pastored for a number of years now. I pastored a little church in the northern part of Iowa. And I think I figured out I've preached 27 Christmas series and or messages. 27 seasons of Christmases. I mean, you got to get kind of creative after that, right? And every year in the little church, we used to do, uh, we used to do uh, performances. I mean, whatever, I mean, as much as you can call a performance in a church of 70 or 80 people or whatever, you know. 
And we would, we would write, I even wrote a play. In fact, we're going to do that play. No, we're not. We're not going to do that play. You would not want to do that play. Anyway. But we did plays, you know, and, and we would, you know, we, we'd all get, we'd spend weeks before, you know, the one weekend where we showed our Christmas play, you know. And just, you know, when we would practice for hours and just before we do a scene, it was always, everybody in your place or places everyone, as the old line has it. If you think about it, God, Father God moved thousands of people all over the place just to get his son in the place where he needed to be by way of a pagan emperor's edict to move people around just to fulfill a prophecy 700 years earlier when Micah said, but you, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, though you are like nothing amongst the villages, you're just a little hamlet out there, but out of you is going to come a ruler whose days are from everlasting. That's Jesus. And that was a prophecy fulfilled. God was absolutely dedicated to the details of every... People were moving. Can you imagine the complaining that was going on during that time? Unbeknownst to them what God was doing. But it shouldn't have surprised them. God once said to Jeremiah, he said, I watch over my word to accomplish it. Have you ever read that? That pictures God absolutely like a divine micromanager making sure every single detail is happening. Jesus said not one jot or tittle will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Have you read that? That means God... Now listen, listen carefully to the implication of this. Jesus Christ is every bit as concerned about the details in your life as his Father was concerned about the details in his. Anybody here a micromanager? Raise your hand. Be honest. You're a micromanager, okay? All right. Very good. All right. I have not met too many micromanagers that are liked by those who are micromanaged underneath them. Just telling you. Not saying it's not true in your life. I am the world's worst micromanager. In fact, I don't even try to micromanage. Okay, that's not true. I've tried it. It, it, it. It's a catastrophe every time. God is the only micromanager who has never screwed up. Have you ever thought of that? He's, listen, he is working out thousands of details right now, right now, in your life, just to get you to where you need to be. Did you know that? And do you even believe that? If you believe he's an omnipotent God, that he's all-powerful, if you believe he's an omniscient God, that he knows everything, if you believe that he's an omnipresent God, which means he's everywhere simultaneously at the same time, then you have to believe he understands the details right down to the smallest of them in your life. And I have seen Philippians 1, 6 played out seriously without a scintilla of exaggeration. Every single month of my life as a Christian, I think I've seen Philippians 1, 6 lived out in somebody's life. That's where it says we're confident of this very thing that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I, I see this repeatedly. Individuals who've come to know Christ three years earlier, five or 10 or 20. I, I know of an individual who was saved somewhere between 25 and 30 years ago, led to Christ by somebody in this church, but they just, they just struggled 
in their walk with God, their husband wasn't saved, and so they just quit coming. And then just a few years ago, we evangelized the husband. He gets saved, and then they become full members of the church, and more importantly, walking with God. The point is that God, even through that long hiatus in this woman's life, never gave up on the details. He never gives up on you. He never gives up on us if you know him. This should be very encouraging to you. He never gives up. I see this happen, especially with new Christians. It's almost like God makes his presence known and his interest in your life known, especially when you're a young believer in Jesus. Case in point, just the other day, I was, uh, well, I can remember my own life. That wasn't just the other day. I was only saved for a couple of days. I smoked marijuana every single day for six straight years. I, I worked at John Deere. I, uh, I knew every nook and cranny where you could smoke reefer and get away with it. Never even get, came close to being caught. But a week after I get saved, I get caught. And I'm holding the joint. I could have lost my job. But there was no question in my mind that whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And God was putting his eyes on the spot... And his eyes on that day was a foreman who, for some inexplicable reason, let me go. He could have fired me. But that was just his way of showing love. Just the other day, we have a, we, there's a guy, in, and don't, don't go wild with this thinking here. There's a guy in our church that drives a party limo. Now, I know some of you are like, I know who that is. Forget that for a moment, okay? Just, he drives a party limo. You know what a party limo is? I thank God for party limos because they keep the drunks off the street, Right? So this guy's driving a party limo. He's got a group of women in the back of this thing, and they're, they're partying, and they're getting drunk. And one of them is so snockered, she can't walk, much less drive. And so, you know, his job's take her home. So she is absolutely inebriated out of her brains. He's telling me the story. He comes up and he's a pastor. I've got to tell you a story. So tell me the story. He says, I'm driving home. I'm driving this woman home, and she's just smashed. And she says, hey, I'm saved. <laughs> you know, he's like, sure you are, you know. He says, uh, you know, she goes, yeah. She goes, I'm getting baptized this Wednesday night. He goes, oh, that's, that's, that's nice to no, know, yeah. Where are you getting baptized? Sailorville Church. That's very interesting, he says. I said, did you tell her? No, he said, I didn't tell her anything. And so uh, she, she says she's going to get baptized. She's been saved. Well, this guy was very wise the way he handled it, got her back to her, you know, where she lived, and he came and told me, and I talked to her pastor. Was well, she, she, High Point Church, our third church plant, has service here last Wednesday night, a baptismal service. A whole bunch of people here. She was supposed to be a part of that. So as I said to the, to the brother who came to me about it, I said, is it possible that God is really working in this girl's life? Is it possible that she truly did trust Jesus, but God just isn't letting her get away with it? Is it possible that whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he received as being applied to her right now? And of course, he agreed with that. And so we, I talked to Greg Pollock, our third, our church planner at High Point. And he said, oh my goodness, he said, she didn't show up the next day. She was supposed to be there at a morning Bible study. Imagine that. But he called her. And he said to her, he said, say, he said, what if I told you that the limo driver 
that you were, uh, you know, of the car you were in last night was a fervent Christian. And she was absolutely beside herself. She was undone. She, in fact, he said, what if I told you he was a member of Sailorville Church? She was, oh my goodness. And she confessed her sin right there with great humility, right on the spot. She'd had a prop, she's had a problem with drinking. And he said to her, do you know that discipline is a gift from God? And that if he, God loves you, he will chasten you. It's just God's eyes on the scene. That's all it was. And she said to him, she goes, well, I guess I can't get baptized this Wednesday then, can I? And he said to her, who told you you can't get baptized this Wednesday? I didn't. She got baptized last Wednesday, and she owned it on her own, of her own volition, shared the entire story with the entire church. And they rejoiced with her, not for her fall, but for a God who knows the details in her life and put the right people in the right place to get the right kid to look back to Jesus. Amen? I know that this is not the most important part of the story, but it's part of the story. It fulfilled prophecy, and it reminds us that God is working in hundreds, if not thousands, of detailed ways in my life and in yours. Here's a second implication I give you. If Jesus is God, if he's deity, then the way he came and lived should be a constant source of great humility to you and me. I mean, Jesus was a king, was he not? King of kings, Lord of lords, right? And yet he was also a lamb. Lambs aren't born in hospitals or palaces. They're born in stables. They're not wrapped in king's robes. They're laid in straw. And they're not visited by dignitaries either. Lambs are visited by shepherds. And you don't get any, anybody lower on the totem pole in the system than a shepherd in Jesus' day. And then that little line in verse 7 that there was no place, no room in the inn. No way this story is complete without that little addendum, right? And you could never convince me in a million years that the Holy Spirit did not allow that to be put in for you, for you and I to not, I mean, to contemplate this. This is something... We need to think about, what does it mean there was no room for Jesus? This, is, this was the story of his life. It's the story of some of you. You haven't had room for Jesus all of your life. You still don't have room for him. There's no vacancy in your life. The irony is your life is vacant. Isaiah 53, the prophecy of his coming, he was despised and rejected. John writes, he was in the world, the world was made by him, but the world didn't know him. He came into his own, his own wouldn't even receive him, but as many as received him. To them, God gave the right to become the children of God. This is what Dorothy uh, Sayers wrote years ago. The incarnation means that for whatever reason God chose to let us fall into a condition of being limited to suffer, to be subject to sorrow and death. 
he has nonetheless had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. He himself has gone through the whole human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He, has, he was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain all for us and thought it well worth his while, unquote. What's more about Jesus? He lived as unimpressively as one could possibly imagine. I'm not referring to his miracles. They were very impressive. And they had reason to be impressive, to point us to God. I'm talking about just him. Just him, just Jesus. A lot of you are on Facebook, and if you go on Facebook at any given time, you got your pictures of your little darlings up there, right? We love to put our babies on Facebook, do we not? We just love it. We look at these pictures, and we hit the like button, and we hit it again, and then we hit, we write one word, like adorable, and love, and you know, whatever other expression you can throw out, because these are just beautiful babies, are they not? I got to thinking, you know, if, if Mary put Jesus on Facebook, what you might say, what we might say, I think we'd probably be more like the, the, uh, the mother in the first despicable me. We'd go, eh, eh. When is the last time you read this prophecy of Jesus' appearance? Again, he grew up before him as a young plant, like a dry root out of, I'm sorry, root out of dry ground. He, watch this, had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He didn't look like Justin Timberlake. Think about the implications of this. I mean, you ever play these video games where, you know, in order to start the game, you can kind of make your own person that looks like you, you know? I think I'll put a, you know, I'll put sideburns and never have been able to grow those, you know, whatever. If you could make up your own, you know, your own image, if you could make up your own stature, your own looks, your own hair color, your own eyes, you know, your own facial features, your own, you know, rough, tough and buff guy or just slender, beautiful, what, what would you do? Would you do it if you could do it? Most, are you saying, like, in a heartbeat? Yeah. Well, God did have that option, and he chose not to do that. There was no form, no majesty, no beauty that you and I would be naturally drawn to Jesus by. Get that in your heart. Get it in your mind. Like Keller writes, the incarnation means that God was willing to empty himself of his glory. And I, I think that means everything we think of when we think of glory, including beauty and power and live humbly as a servant. He writes, that means, among other things, that Jesus became extremely ordinary in appearance. The incarnation should mean that Christians do not go on appearances. This should mean the end of all snobbery, unquote. 
So, the next time you think that you deserve more respect, more loyalty, more royalty, more understanding, you wish you could be taller, faster, smarter, slender, more beautiful physiologically, then picture this, God himself in a cattle trough. And that might change your perspective just a little bit. Here's a third implication. When, if Jesus is deity, if he is God and he is, then you, I, we must give him all the focus of our glory. Let me tell you something that many of you have already come to know by way of experience. You show me your focus, and I'll show you what you're becoming. You show me your focus, and I will show you what you are becoming. If my focus is on a person that hurt me, I won't only become embittered, I'll start to become like him or her. If my focus is on a person I don't like, right now picture somebody you don't like. You know, I mean, you're thinking one person? Just stick to one right now, okay? One person you don't like. And not just somebody you don't like. Somebody you think about a lot that you don't like. How many times have you ever heard someone say, I will never be like my mother. And then they what? Just like her. I'll never be like my dad. And then they end up just like their dad. That is because of the principle of metamorphosis that goes on, that is determined by our focus. The reason is we, we, we morph towards that which we focus on. Just, it's just that simple. It's not rocket science. It happens all the time around us. You know that, right? If Jesus is our true focus... Really, then we start to look more and more like him. And that's completely affirmed by scripture, where Paul says, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one level of glory to the next, even by the spirit of God. Focusing in on Jesus, we become more like Jesus. It's just that simple. You show me your focus, I'll show you who you're becoming like every single time. And one of the direct and important implications of this Christmas story is that Jesus Christ deserves all of our focus. There are lots of characters, fascinating characters throughout the Christmas story. Yet everything, everything in the story just pushes and pushes and pushes, pushes us towards Jesus, right? The scene in the field is full of wonder. One angel shows up, boom, there's a light all around those shepherds. Then, boom, thousands of them are just flooding the place and glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men because unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He's Christ the Lord. Focus on Him. Go to Him. Honor Him. If the mystery of God's love for us draws their attention, 
the revelation of his son. That is, I'm talking about angels. The mystery of what God is doing in our life, Peter says, has all their attention. They, they can't figure it out. Angels aren't God. And, and you get the impression they kind of wonder, what's, what's, what's going on here? What are, you, what are you messing with these people for? At the same time, they're guarding us and taking care of us and all that stuff. But the revelation of his son to this world caused them to just explode. You get the impression when you read this, it's like they're just on the precipice of heaven. They can't wait to go out and praise him because all their focus is on him. Recently, somebody reminded me that I had told him several years ago when I came, this guy was enamored with me. And I told him, I, I remember this, but he reminded me, he said, you remember what you said to me out to lunch one day? I said, no, remind me, what did I say? You told me you would disappoint me someday. I said, I remember saying that, and I did remember saying that. He goes, well, you did. <laughs> Imagine that. I'm glad for his sake I disappointed him. Because God, thank you, whatever that means. What, listen, God didn't call me to be your focus. He called me to focus my attention on Jesus and push you toward him in as much as I can. You remember that scene at the end of Gladiator when Russell Crowe, you know, Maximus, you know, he's, you know, he's the crowd's favorite. And finally, the Caesar, the wicked tyrant, you know, uh, sabotages the final fight by, you know, puncturing his lung and then fights him in front of the crowd. And yet Maximus prevails and rids the world of the wicked tyrant, kills the Caesar. And there is Maximus standing there, albeit temporarily, because he's dying and he falls over dead. And the Caesar's sister comes out and she loves Maximus and she, there's this epic moment where she looks down on him after he dies and she stands up and looks to the crowd and she says, he was a soldier of Rome, honor him. And all around come slaves and gladiators and dignitaries alike gathering around the body of Maximus and they lift him up and carry him out of the arena. It's powerful. Let me tell you something. Jesus is more than a soldier. He is the captain of the Lord of hosts. And through his incarnation, his death, and his resurrection, he has ridded us of the greatest tyrants of our lives. Sin, Satan, and separation from God. All so that we might honor him. Honor him. Not by lifting him up and carrying him out. Just lifting him up. He's already died and rose again. Amen? Look up, believing friend. Your day is coming when, like the shepherds, you will behold Jesus. And here's what he said. Father, I desire that, this is just before he died, that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. And if you will behold him in glory, listen to this. If you will behold him in glory, then why don't you behold him in life and make him the full focus of all of your glory, especially in this Advent season? And the final implication is 
centers around the shepherds. Pursue him. Proclaim him. Ponder him. And praise him. Pursue him. This is what they did, verse 16. They, and they made haste and they found Mary and Joseph. You see, the word found, the Greek word means to find after a search. Remember, this is, this is before, this is probably at least, at least a year or so before the wise men ever showed up. And they were following that, you know, that star, that thing that God made, that light. That wasn't around. They had to actually find Jesus in the cave. And some of you just need to find Jesus. Go to him, pursue him, and worship him as the one who died and rose again for you. You don't have to go to a cave. You can find Jesus right here, right now, because if you will come to me, Jesus said, I will not cast you out. Proclaim him. That's what they do. And then the very next verse, they go out and they proclaim the saying, the saying of the angels, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who's Christ the Lord. Proclaim him. And ponder him. That's what Mary's always doing, always pondering, right? This is my wife's favorite part. My wife has this passage memorized so much, she probably has deeper insights into it than I do, and she loves this part. She loves the idea of the pondering aspect of Mary. This is a, this is a note to you if you're a true follower of Jesus. Ponder these things. God in a manger. That's worth pondering. And pondering, the right kind of pondering, leads to worship and praise him. That's what the last verse says that we looked at. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for everything they'd heard and seen and told him. And as we saw last week, if you're going to do that, the praise has to come from within. Praise to God that pleases him must start internally. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. It has to be an internal devotion to God. And if you've never internalized the truth that God humbled himself like this and all of its implications, if you've never seriously contemplated the humility of God, then you're really not ready to embrace what he's done for you. Stop being so full of yourself. Take down the no vacancy sign and say, listen, I'm ready. If you're here this morning, you would say, I, I need to pursue him. I need to make haste and go to Jesus. Then do it. Right now, in your heart of hearts, place your faith in Christ to be your Lord and your Savior. He died and rose again for you. He didn't come down spectacularly like he could have. But he did it the way he did it so that you and I might learn of him. Just like he said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I'm meek, I'm lowly in heart, right? My yoke's easy, my burden's light. Come to me. And if you're a follower of Jesus, like Mary... Let's ponder these things and increase your magnification of Jesus Christ. May we pray? Our Father, we are thankful today, thankful for the advent of Jesus Christ, God in a manger, Emmanuel, God with us. I pray for those who are in our 
room right here who have got through the rough weather this morning. They're here. <coughs> and they would say that they've kept Jesus out. They've contemplated. They've wondered a little bit like the shepherds. And maybe right now they're pondering this truth that Jesus came as a babe to live a perfect life, to die for them as a sacrifice and to rise again. If that's you, friend, run to him, pursue him, place your faith in him and be born in him. Become his child. And for those of us who know you, Lord, increase our worship. Make us true ponderers of your glory and give you the full glory, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.